Okay, so the book of James. We read the whole book this week, which was pretty exciting. Actually, the book of James is probably the oldest book in the New Testament. It's written around 45 AD, we think. And if you remember, we're reading the events of the New Testament chronologically, in the order in which they occurred. So we're kind of bouncing around a little bit. Not the order the books were actually written. So if you think about how the books were written, this is probably the oldest New Testament book, we think. It was written maybe the first book after Jesus' death and resurrection. When the author, James, is believed to be Christ's half-brother. James wasn't a believer, we know this, until after the resurrection. He was a half-brother of Christ, and he didn't believe until after the resurrection. But he became a very influential early Christian. And basically, the book he wrote is a, is a handbook on how to endure persecution, how to model authentic faith, and be encouraged because Christ loves you. James is primarily speaking to Jews who were living in Jerusalem, who were just beginning to face some real persecution. Remember, it's only been about a decade since Christ died and was resurrected. James, we know, was martyred in about 62 AD, maybe as late as 66 AD. And we know that because of the historian Josephus. Remember Josephus? Megan talked about him last week. He's one of the historians that wrote about Jews and Christianity. We're not sure how James died. It's likely he was stoned to death, like Stephen. Um, and he died probably because of the political ambitions of some of the local authorities and because he preached the law of Christ. So as you read this week, I'm sure you noticed the book of James is full of practical wisdom for everyday living. He wrote that genuine faith will manifest itself in righteous acts that come out of a pure heart. However, did you also notice that the book seldom mentions Christ and does not refer to the resurrection. In fact, Martin Luther, you know the Martin Luther of the Reformation in the 1500s, he said the book was full of straw because it contained little or nothing about evangelism. However, it is loaded with really good advice about how to live a Christian life. Although James doesn't teach us how to come nearer the Lord through salvation, he does tell us how a just man orders his daily existence. A minute ago I mentioned that Martin Luther, Martin Luther called this book full of straw. He didn't like this book at all because it talked so little of faith and so much about works. Where is the salvation message in that? And that lack of a salvation message has bothered biblical scholars for many, many, many years. We haven't formally read the other New Testament books by Paul yet. You've probably had smatterings of them through your, the rest of your life. But many of us are familiar with his position on faith. So in Romans 5, 1 through 2, Paul writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then in Ephesians 2.8, he writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And then in Romans, again, 10.6, he says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So think about that a minute. Contrast that with what you read in James this week. James, in two, um, chapter 2.14, says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if people claim to have faith but have no deeds? Can such faith save them? Yikes. James 2.17 and 18 says, In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. And then in James 2, 26, he says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So that just seems like, whoa, how am I going to reconcile those things? And I read a commentary that I thought really perfectly described <clears throat> how you take this seeming contradiction between James' emphasis on works and Paul's emphasis on faith and you, how they mesh in reality if you really understand what they mean. So what the commentator said was, James and Paul are not standing face-to-face -face fighting each other, but back-to-back -back fighting different enemies. The two men are not contradictory to each other, but they're complementary to each other. So if you think about it, James' primary audience, think if they were standing back to back fighting different enemies, James' primary audience at the time were Jews, mostly in Jerusalem, some dispersed throughout the world. These Jews had a deep understanding of the role of the law and that God had in the lives of Jewish people. They had a lot of training in this. Paul's primary audience were new believers, not just Jews, but mostly Gentiles all throughout the known world. These new believers struggled with the beliefs of their early years, and many of them were form former idol worshipers. They didn't have the background that the Jews had in understanding the true God. They needed that pure, clear truth that faith in Jesus was sufficient and nothing they could do on their own would bridge that gap between them and God, only Christ. And it's also interesting that the book we read by James puts to rest the idea that you can become a Christian and yet continue living in sin, exhibiting no fruit of righteousness. Such a faith, James declares, is shared by the demons who believe and tremble. That's in James 2.19. Yet such a faith cannot save because it is not verified by the works that always accompany true saving faith. Good works are not the cause of our salvation. Faith is the cause of our salvation. Christ is the reason for our salvation. But good, but, um, good works are the result of our salvation. That's the, that's the difference. That's how it works together. So I was thinking and reading about Saul last week, as we all did, 
and James this week, and I started wondering, how did they deal with the regrets in their life? Last week we read about Saul, who we were told, quote, made havoc of the church. Think about that. That's just not he was kind of a problem. He made havoc of the church. He swept into the homes of Christ believers, captured them, forced them to jail, put them to judgment, and many of them he caused to be killed. He watched Stephen's stoning. He watched it. And it's a particularly gruesome style of execution. Saul actively and creatively thought of ways to persecute Jews who believed in Jesus. And this week, we read the book of James. And, you know, again, we believe it's written by the half-brother of Jesus, who wasn't a believer until after the resurrection. And James, think about this, James grew up with Jesus. He knew him from family events for many, many years. In fact, if you think about it, I don't know, but think about it, he's a half-brother. He maybe knew Jesus longer than anyone else of his followers. But James didn't get to appreciate that precious time with an understanding of who Jesus was. All that time lost when James could have been learning and watching and soaking in the nearness to this great teacher who was the Son of God. He missed so much. And I was really struck by thinking about these are two different kinds of things to regret in these two men's lives, but how, did, how they overcame that regret. They must have had some for their past actions or inactions. And I'm willing to bet there's probably not a single woman here this morning who doesn't have something to regret in her past. Some of us have really big regrets. Maybe not as big as Saul's, I mean, we haven't killed somebody. But big, nonetheless. Big enough to have the scriptures attached to those things like shameful or shoddy or sinful or wrong or disgraceful. And all of us have something to regret where we feel some remorse, some chagrin, some sorrow. We wish we hadn't done or said or been like that. And we know the Bible is a book of love to us, but it's also a book of instruction. So let's take a look at the lives of Saul and James and observe in what we read how they overcame the regret that I think they must have experienced. So James wasn't evil or criminal. As I see it, his regret would have been for the opportunities that he had missed, the time that he lost. This is a pretty kind, common kind of regret. I think it's the type of regret we all feel from time to time. We should have done something that we didn't do. I learned that a friend of mine from long ago died last week. And in addition to a kind of a distant feeling of loss, I felt regret 
but I hadn't used opportunities to talk about faith with this person. I'm not talking about the sort of aggressive, well, let's talk about Jesus <laughs> discussions that I didn't have. But instead, why didn't I use opportunities that presented themselves to broach the subject? You know, watching a sunset, I could have talked about the wondrous creation that God made, and I could have let that gospel thread lead to some kind of naturally flowing discussion that's orchestrated by the Holy Spirit about my faith, not pointing my finger at the other person, but just explaining what I believe. I know why I didn't just launch into an attack about his lack of faith, but why was I so quiet about my own faith? I honestly prayed that God had a plan B in place for this person who was now gone. Because if I had been plan A, I was a miserable failure. So there's not much we know about James' life before he became a believer. We hardly ever hear anything about it. But we know that James wrote the book of James. He became the head of the Jerusalem church. And in Galatians, he's mentioned as a pillar of the entire early church. We know that James was martyred for refusing to deny Christ. There's nothing directly in the Bible about James feeling regret, but he was human, and regret is a really human emotion. James doesn't write about regret in his book, but he does write about the practical of living life as a believer. Many, many, many passages about the challenges of moving from thinking about our faith to acting on our faith. James clearly didn't focus on the regrets that he might have had, but he focused on moving ahead on the path that God had for him. And he wrote, faith without works is dead. That's in James 2.26. And then there was Saul. He had a very different kind of regret. Saul refused to see Jesus for who he was. As Saul, he was so blinded by the rules of his belief that he not only missed the very Messiah that he professed to be looking for, but he put to death and imprisoned people who believed in Jesus Christ those people who were doing the right thing. He was evil and cruel, and he persecuted those whom God loved and who loved God. And then Saul had the Damascus Road experience, where God literally stopped him in his tracks and confronted him with the truth. And it was Saul's understanding of Christ's truth and the power of forgiveness from God that comes with that, that made Saul into a new person, totally different from his persecuting self. Saul, then renamed Paul, became the chief promoter of Jesus' message. It's at that point that I wondered, did he ever feel regret for the lives he had ended? Did he realize what he had done now that he knew the truth? And we do know what he accomplished after his conversion. 
Paul made three long missionary journeys throughout the Roman Empire, which at that time was really the known world. He planted churches, he was preaching the gospel, he was giving strength and encouragement to all those early Christians. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, Paul, we think, wrote 13 of them. He towers as one of the all-time giants of Christianity. For both of them, for Saul and Paul, and for James, and for me, and for you, there blessedly was and is forgiveness and life after our bad actions. But we're human, and regret is a really active emotion. So what do we do today about regret? So I read a couple of current articles on regret, and they mostly stress the pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of philosophy to overcome regret. You know, if you recognize it, you can work through it. Sort of a power of thinking positively attitude. Well, as Christians, we know that won't work. Forgiveness from God through the sacrifice of Christ is the only way to have the power to overcome the negatives in our lives. So let's remember what Paul and James did in their lives as believers as they faced what probably was some regret for what they had done. Paul lived out his belief in the saving grace of Jesus by moving forward with the work that God had for him, not looking back at the life God rescued him from. He didn't retreat to some comfortable couch and feel sorry for himself and eat a quart of chunky monkey ice cream with a spoon. Okay, that just got a little too personal. It's going to erase that part of the tape, folks. Paul knew that God had work for him to do. And that work wouldn't get done if Paul was continually thinking regretfully about his past. But you know, I don't think he forgot it entirely either. He continually identified with those who had sinned and could have had deep regrets. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So remember the last time I taught, we talked a lot about justification. And we learned that justification is essentially a gift from God that we do not deserve and we cannot earn, but which removes all liability for our sins, from our past acts, from us, when we believe in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You can't believe that you have anything that needs to be covered with the defense of justification unless you recognize there is some sin in your life that needs to be forgiven. And in writing Romans 5.1 that I just read, Paul tells us that we, like him, can have complete peace with God because our faith has justified us by erasing the punishment for our past acts. Paul didn't forget his past life, but he didn't wallow in regret. He gripped that promise of complete forgiveness, and he moved ahead. I think he used his memory of the past to kind of fortify himself on the path that God led him. 
And we know that it led him to amazing acts that encourage us and teach us and have taught people for the last 2,000 years about. His regret may have fortified him, but it wasn't his only support. He couldn't have done what he did only fueled by his regret. That's what people today mistakenly think. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps and I won't go back to what I did. It was Paul who wrote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then what about James? Okay, he stayed off that couch and away from the ice cream in the freezer too. We know that James rose to head up the church in Jerusalem, likely the largest body of believers in the world at that time. He faced persecution by both the Romans and the Orthodox Jews, as did that entire church that he was the head of. <clears throat> Those Rome, the Romans and the Orthodox Jews were persecuting because they feared the power of Christ. They knew what damage it could do to their system. In fact, I thought it was really interesting when Peter was freed from imprisonment by an angel. Remember when he was chained and he was free, the angel came and freed him from his chains. The first thing recorded that he said was tell James. That's this James, who was the head of the church in Jerusalem. And he was the head of the church in Jerusalem when this big controversy arose. Gee, a controversy among Christians? Imagine that. Back in the first century. That's kind of exciting. Um, and the controversy was, should these new Gentile believers that they were bringing into the church, should they have to become Jews first in order to be accepted into the church as believers? You know, did they would they have to be circumcised? Did they have to follow the Jewish laws first before we could see them as believers? In other words, to be saved... Were there things they had to do to earn their salvation, basically? And it was such a big controversy between the Jewish and the Gentile believers that they called a council to kind of make a, make a rule and, and discuss this. And James was the head of this council. And in his God-given wisdom, James created, brought together the final consensus among, the, among these disputing Christians and created the set of rules that allowed these two groups to join together. And we read about that in Acts 15. And this Jerusalem council made it abundantly clear that these rules were not requirements for salvation. They reaffirmed that salvation is by grace for both Jews and Gentiles. That was huge. And it was James who pulled it all together. He was called a pillar of the church. And I read that every time Paul came to Jerusalem, he made time to meet with James. That's how important it was. I wonder, I think, that James probably often thought that the decisions and the actions that God was leading him to might have been easier if he had spent that time with Jesus when he had the chance. If he could have been a sponge soaking up the wisdom and the parables and the teaching that Jesus so freely gave to everyone who followed him. But he didn't stop and regret. 
He didn't go, well, I missed my chance. I could have done something, but, you know, I guess I'll just kind of hang out. I believe that James, like Paul, used the regret to fuel his life of service for the glory of God. And it's likely, honestly, that each of the disciples had something in his life that he regretted. We know that Peter did, and Paul, and James, and many others. But not a one of them allowed those regrets to take hold of their hearts and minds. Instead, they prayed, they looked ahead, and they carried on doing the work that Jesus had set before them, which was making disciples. I read an article this week that I found amazing. And it really made me think for a long time. And I'm going to read part of that article. And it's called, We're Called to Make Disciples, Not Converts. So the article, what if I said that in all of Scripture we are never told to convert anyone? What if I proposed that people accepting Jesus into their life does not fulfill our mission? Jesus is a part of our lives when he should be our life. He is life. Following him requires all our life. The disciples ate, drank, sweat, and slept ministry from when Jesus called them to the day they died. Jesus wasn't a part of their lives. He was their lives. Jesus came to take over. Many people come to Jesus thinking it's enough to believe, to stand on the sidelines and root for him. Well, Jesus isn't looking for cheerleaders. He's seeking men and women who will follow him whatever the cost. He's looking for radical devotion, unreasonable commitment, and undivided dedication. He isn't looking for converts. He's looking for disciples. Converts are new believers. We all start as converts. Too often, we stop there. We make Christianity all about what we believe, which is good. Converts aren't bad or wrong. They're like babies. There's nothing wrong with being a baby. They're precious. The problem comes when that doesn't change. When a baby acts like a baby, it's really cute. When a 35-year-old does, it's sad. <laughs> As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Our mission isn't to win converts. It's to make disciples. So what's the difference? And then there's this list. Converts are believers who live like the world. Disciples are believers who live like Jesus. Converts are focused on their values and interests and worries and fears and priorities and lifestyles. Disciples are focused on Jesus. Converts go to church. Disciples are the church. Converts are involved in the mission of Jesus. Disciples are committed to it. Converts cheer from the sidelines. I mean, these things are good. Disciples are in the game. Converts hear the word of God. Disciples live it. Converts follow the rules. 
Disciples follow Jesus. Converts are all about believing. Disciples are all about being. Converts are comfortable. Disciples make sacrifices. Converts talk. Disciples make more disciples. A disciple is someone who desperately seeks to be like Jesus. A disciple is someone so committed to the cause of Christ that they would follow him through the gates of hell and back. Not only is a disciple willing to die for Jesus, but they are dedicated to living every day of their life for him. Christianity isn't just a system of belief. It isn't a lifestyle. It's a life transformed by Jesus. Jesus doesn't call everyone to leave everything every day. He calls us to be willing to give up everything at any point. His call for each of us is different. He has uniquely gifted every person. I want to read that again. He has uniquely gifted every person to carry out a unique and valuable function in his kingdom. While what we are called to may be unique, the call is an extreme standard. Jesus must be greater than everything else. So, you know, I like to leave you with a little bit of a challenge. So, after reading James all week and learning that our lives should be showing the fruit of our faith and knowing that God has uniquely gifted every woman in this room, every single one of us, to carry out a unique and valuable function in his kingdom, I kind of think of it as walking this unique path for God. I have a question for you. What's your function at this time in your life? So there's an article on the table in the back, you may have noticed it when you came in, about one of our sisters, Julie Topliff, who is now and has been for a year serving in Africa with mercy ships. That's her function and the path that God has her on at this time in her life. Now, it's a medical mission, and neither Julie nor her husband have any medical training, <laughs> but they both are being used by God in amazing ways to reach people who need to know Jesus. It's pretty radical when you think about it. She's one of us who was here with us for years. So my function at this time in my life isn't anything like hers. I believe that my path from God at this time in my life is right here in San Diego County, helping two lifelong believers who just happen to be my parents live out their lives in their own home, able to witness, which they do still, about Christ's provision in their lives to every one of their neighbors, their doctors, their caregivers, and to provide a model for everyone who knows them or hears about them, about what finishing a race strongly looks like for a Christian. My mom's 92 and my dad just turned 100. So here's where I get a little radical. This week, and this is really a step out for me, I'd like to hear from you about what your path is at this time in your life. Not forever, maybe, but right now, what's your path? So I'm going to write down my email address 
on this board. And, you know, I'd like you to send me an email this week. Not the great American novel, okay? Something, <laughs> yeah. Something kind of manageable. <laughs> and tell me what your path is right now. And then we can celebrate that together about what God's doing in our lives. And, you know, if you're a believer and you, you don't know what path God wants you on, talk to me or Rhonda or Denise or Megan or any one of your table leaders and let us pray with you and walk with you to figure it out. You may already be on a path that allows you to make disciples and just not realize it. Or this may be a time of rest for you. And your path right now is pretty simple. That's fine. On the other hand, you may be so overwhelmed with daily tasks, you can't figure out where God wants you. Get with another believer to help you figure it out. Is that busyness from God? Maybe it's not. Maybe it is. Don't sit alone. Get honest with someone else here. Learn to live without regret and with the joy that comes from knowing you are where God wants you to be. So I'm going to let you go to your tables. That's all I've got today about James. It was a huge book. It was fabulous. I, also, I actually read something else that... Um, the man who wrote Peter Pan, his mother was a devout Christian. She read the book of James constantly. When she died, he went to clean up her home and her Bible, he picked it up in it, and when he put it down, it fell open naturally to the book of James. I thought that was a great story. Before you go to your tables, though, I have at the back table, there are a bunch of cards. And what I would like, and this is something you can do that's part of your path, if you want, just get started. Um, I'd like you to fill up these cards with thoughts of prayer and good wishes for Julie. I'll make sure that they get to her. They'll get to her in a couple weeks. I know how to send them to her. And let her know that you're praying for her, whether you know her or not. You know, I think it'll make a huge difference to her, and I think it'll help all of us, too. So um, that's all I've got. Rhonda has some stuff, oh. and I'll make some announcements, too. We have the women's retreat coming up, and sign-up sheets are there. It's filling up. That's pretty cool. So if you're interested in that, it is what weekend? March 20, 22nd, 22nd, through the 24th. 22nd through the 24th. It's going to be cool. It'll be fabulous. $200, and Rhonda's got the sign-up sheet. So don't let the time go. Take a step. Seriously. Okay. So... Email Deborah. She really wants to. I mean, I yeah. do. I see. I think Deborah has Barnabas type gifts. <laughs> Even that the Spirit has kind of put this on her to say, like, what has God gifted you with? Because Barnabas came to Paul and said, I see this gifting. I want to work with you. I want to walk beside you in that. That's kind of what you're saying. I really do see you as a as a, an encourager for us to be makers of disciples in our unique way. So that's incredible opportunity so let her exercise her gift by emailing her right it's, it's a joy when god puts something on your heart to do and then somebody gives you an opportunity to do it you're like yes 
you actually feel joy in doing that. So let's make that for a really joyful. <laughs> 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 Woohoo! Uh, yeah, so that sign ups, uh, <laughs> encouragement to Julie. Yes. <laughs> Anything else? All right. Have a great time in the group.